jazz musicians are constantly trying to add new language, broaden my language, broaden my language, broaden my language, but oftentimes not really asking themselves, like, how can I do more with less? Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. On today's show, Sam Sadagurski shares his experience playing minimalist music with the Philip Glass Ensemble, jazz music with Brad Meldow, and tips for improvising as a classically trained player. If you're looking for extra help with these sort of contemporary techniques, he's also written some etude books, which you can check out at his website at samsadagurski.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Clarinet Podcast wherever you happen to be listening. And if you'd like access to the ad-free extended version of the show, you can do this at clarinet.com slash join. You can actually get your first 30 days for free with code TRIGOLD at checkout. That's code TRIGOLD at clarinet.com. That's to access the Clarinet Gold Edition. Uh, I'd love to thank the people who are supporting the podcast in that way and also on Patreon. And of course, to our wonderful sponsors, Canadian companies, Bakun Musical Services and Legere Reads. Thank you so much for making the program possible. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Cronaggio Freddy, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store, or you can now save 10% on your Legere reads with code CLARINET at checkout at legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. I'm here on the podcast today with Sam Setagurski, who's coming to us from New York City in the United States. He is a multi-talented clarinetist, doubler, composer, and recording artist who has performed on over 50 albums, including the Grammy, Tony, and Emmy award-winning show, The Band's Visit on Broadway. He's also, of course, a member of the Philip Glass Ensemble since 2020, and we are very, very lucky to have him here today on the program. Sam, welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. Thank you, Sean. Thrilled to be here. So you're one of those guests that I've been trying to get in touch with for a while, and we've been meaning to have this interview for quite a while, but as we were talking about before we went on air here, there's been so many hangups, you know, with the whole COVID situation that's just never ending, and, you know, us having a baby here, and my God, it's just been so, so busy. So, but I'm very, very happy to finally get a chance to connect with you. So first of all, for those listeners who may not, um, you know, know your work uh, intimately, could you give a brief sort of summation as to what you what you do and how you got involved with the Philip Glass Ensemble most recently? Yeah, as a performer, um, I've kind of been all over the map um, in terms of what I do. You know, I grew up kind of loving jazz, but my 20, almost 25 years here in New York, you know, just sort of making a career have taken me in a lot of other paths. You know, it's just kept me busy having a broad set of skills. So um, yeah, I grew up kind of playing saxophone and the, the clarinet and the flute were sort of doubles. Um, but, you know, always things that I was quite serious about that was instilled in me really, really early, you know, that doubling well would make me employable as a musician. 
And uh, over the last like 10 years or so, I think um, there was there was a gradual evolution where clarinet became more and more my focus and my voice and the things that are the thing that people called me for. And now sort of like, you know, creatively and what I do as a leader is really clarinet centric. You know, the pandemic was actually an amazing time in that um, I got to just play clarinet for a very, very long time, um, which which I had a blast with. And now as we're coming out of the pandemic and I'm sort of like pulled again in other directions, um, I can see actually just how valuable that pandemic time, as hard as it was, um, was for me. Um, but uh, as far as the Glass Ensemble, I had the unfortunate timing of doing my first concerts with them uh, in early 2020. And actually, you know, we did a big performance of music in 12 parts, which is, you know, one of Philip's early manifestos. It's a five hour concert that you do. Um, I was thrown into sort of deep water with them. But that was, uh, I think, like February 28th or March 1, 2020. We, we performed that in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. um, so things shut down like a week later, basically. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, it was it was crazy that that we were doing that because we, we were all hearing whisperings at that point. So anyways, and, you know, it's uh, it's picking back up a little bit. Um, my connection to the ensemble was um, really long term relationships with them. There are three wins in the ensemble and um, the two other um, win players are very, very close friends and colleagues of mine. I sort of uh, am playing in the chair of the late John Gibson, who was um, an incredible composer and saxophonist um, who unfortunately passed away in, in uh, 2020, but he was one of the original members of the ensemble. I actually don't play clarinet in the ensemble yet. Um, the, the chair um, is soprano saxophone and flute. Um, you know, I'm really, they've actually opened up the option of if, playing clarinet on on something if it sort of calls to me so we'll see if that happens down the road a lot of it would be very very a lot of the music at least that's written you know for the philip glass ensemble um is is very relentless and i think would be a lot more challenging to play on clarinet um than it is on saxophone or flute and um you know, a lot of it's very, very fast as well. <laughs> you know, I want to talk a little bit about this, if it's okay, because I think that a lot of musicians, um, certainly in my time at university, my professors, uh, are very dismissive of minimalist music as a genre, and they don't understand sometimes, um, or take it seriously enough as a performance art to really understand the intricacies and do a good job and then enjoy the music in a way that um, maybe it can be or should be enjoyed. Um, what comes to mind to me actually is a piece called in C by Terry Riley. Anyone who has played that piece um, really, I think, appreciates it. And anyone who hasn't almost sees it as a joke party piece, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's very difficult to to actually play that piece in the sense of it's, it's somewhat improvisatory. It has a lot of endurance element that you just don't consider. Like you're basically playing nonstop um, for however long it goes on for um, with musical breaks in between. But but part of it is learning to plan that silence and, and really just, I don't know. So I had a professor who wrote a review, actually, of Philip Glass's uh, concert here in Calgary um, back in about 2007, I would say. And in the review, he said something which struck me as I was reading it as kind of a compliment. But then when I reread it, I realized that he was actually using it as an insult. He, he said something like, um, you know, Philip Glass's music, it skips over the mind and goes straight for the heart. And knowing this person personally, I know that he meant that in a derogatory way. But to me, I was like, man, isn't that 
the goal of, or shouldn't that be the goal of all music is to, you know, bypass that and go straight for the emotions. So anyway, if you could just go into like, as a professional player, what is it like interpreting and realizing minimalist music as part of one of the minimalist founders ensembles? Um, wow. We could talk a lot about this. Um, (laughs) well, I remember when Andrew Sturman first, who is, um, you know, one of the really long-term members of the ensemble, kind of like the flute specialist um, in the ensemble, first asked me if I wanted to step in for John Gibson on some of those um, performances in 2020. I said, Andrew, I don't circular breathe. Um, Cause I just had always assumed that that's what they were doing. Um, and it turns out that's not the case. Um, you know, they really fill up. And I think the, the wind section in the group um, really see, you know, the group is this is two keyboards, one uh, chair that's keyboard and voice, and then three wind players. And it's a combination of saxophones and flutes um, in the winds. And, uh, you know, obviously the keyboards can play constantly and they do. Um, and then we're seen as sort of like the human element um, and are the textures of our three wind parts change constantly because we have to take breaks. And we breathe and we try to do that in a way that's musical and artistic and serves uh, serves the piece we're playing. And, you know, we really try to stagger and, you know, there's an incredible just like team effort that goes in. I'm con- I sit in the middle of the two guys, actually, and I'm constantly aware of like when one of them is sort of like hitting their ends and is going to lay out for a section, you know, and just make sure that I push myself to be in that section so that, you know, two of us haven't dropped out. And yeah, back to what that professor had said, I'm totally with you. Um, I don't think music is uh, an intellectual exercise. I mean, that's part, that's always part of the joy for me is the intellectual aspect, but it should go to the heart, you know? And I, I think, Glasses music, I think because it's sort of like grouped uh, in that it's presented so often in as classical music in the classical world. And I think if you were to talk to Philip, I don't think he sees it that way. Um, I think that's just sort of been like the most convenient place to to present it. But uh, I think, you know, the idea with the glass ensemble originally was to have a group that could really play anywhere. And, you know, their beginnings were, you know, playing lofts in New York. And, uh, you know, we, we actually, we performed a concert in New York, I think in June, 2021, that was sort of our first concert for people in a long time. And, um, Philip actually came and, you know, he didn't really like the venue cause he, he <laughs> said, he, well, he said, it was not that he didn't like the venue, but he said, you know, this is a beautiful place. It was like this rooftop, um, not rooftop, but, you know, very, very high floor in New York. It was an unconventional venue, but he's but he felt like, you know, this this place was built to keep people out. And we play places that that aren't that way, that 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 are open to everybody. So, you know, but I think his music gets placed like in that classical canon. And, you know, some people have certain expectations of like what it should sound like or, um, you know, what the level of sophistication should be. And, yeah, I don't think that's I think Philip has studied the classical canon and taken a lot from it. Um, but uh, I don't think he necessarily sees that his, his music that way. Um, and I can say as a performer getting into it um, that 
I mean, especially rhythmically, it calls upon, you know, every aspect of my musical training and career to play this music. The, the, the rhythmic sophistication that's in there is uh, astounding. And, you know, like I played sort of my real rhythmic sort of, I don't know, training or like doctorate came from playing Latin music for many years and South American music and uh, really learning how to, you know, feel twos and threes and, and mix them up and feel them on top of each other. And um, yeah, Philip's music really calls upon that in such a deep way, even though they're, you know, he writes without time signatures. Um, there's so much metric thing. There's so much polyrhythmic and metric things that happen and uh, so much time spent sort of like tightening um, those things in the ensemble. Well, it's, like you said, it's harder to play than it maybe first sounds, um, especially, you know, for the pianist on some of those pieces where it's a hemiola and they're playing that together. It's it's not simple to make that, you know, really ring out and, and the two parts to be individual at, at the same time combined if that makes sense and it's what I like about it is your ear can kind of land in different places but yet it's all still cohesive it's, it's sort of cool to listen to in that way and um, I think that it has just such a special kind of atmosphere you know which I, I really enjoy too I have to ask like how much involvement because Philip Glass started this ensemble back in the 60s I believe and uh, as a, a laboratory for his music I think he called it um, and this was I can't remember if it was after or before he began uh, some studies, I think it was in India, correct me if I'm wrong, just of rhythmic, more rhythmic music than the typical, you know, Western classical type of music. And this, as it did the Beatles, strongly influenced his his style and his use of rhythm. Um, but I think of other musicians like Chick Corea, who re- recently passed away, unfortunately, but he had said it's wrong to drum at the piano, like you should play it like that. But <laughs> I do feel like Philip Glass is drumming at the piano. So what what can we take from this kind of sort of conflicting idea and should should great ideas just get to be on their own and and is there such a thing as a wrong idea really in music well <laughs> the idea that chick korea isn't drumming at the piano is shocking because uh <laughs> yeah. I, I think all instruments are drumming on some level and uh yeah, right you know uh drumming is rhythm and you know anything we play even things that are completely out of time should have this deep rhythmic rhythmic aspect that i i feel when I listen to excellent music or great players. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of the influence comes from Indian music. I mean, there's like kind of mixed meter things in so many other um, types of music. And I think Philip has, you know, traveled the world and taken taken from so many different things. I mean, also like the the trance and drone elements of Indian music are, are certainly a deep part of what he does. Um, as terms that you had asked about kind of the endurance element and yes, I mean, we, the, the pieces are very, very long and there's constant playing and um, it's just something you learn to navigate as you go along and you learn how to pace yourself, you know, playing a soprano saxophone. Um, you can play a very, very soft read and, you know, that's just totally essential um, and, you know, still make it sound acceptable. I'm not completely sure. I could do that on the clarinet actually. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I'm lucky in that I tend to sort of like go back between soprano, back and forth between soprano saxophone and flute. And obviously playing flute gives, um, you know, not, it's not, I don't want to use the term bite, but uh, you know, that certain, uh, you know, fatigue that I might feel like playing a reed instrument. I, I get to, I get a little break from 
when when I do go to flute. But uh, yeah, I mean, you sometimes, you know, you just end up in a trance yourself playing and, um, you know, the mental focus that's that's required is tremendous. And there's the, you know, the system of cueing that that the ensemble sort of has uh, has uh, developed to play this music. And, you know, oftentimes like music in 12 parts, which is this, you know, four hour piece. Um, is actually not that many pages. I mean, the, the sorry, wait, I, your, your viewers are not actually watching us, but um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, the, the book for that is probably, I don't know, 20 pages, 20, 25 pages or so. It's, it's not a huge amount of music, um, but it's cycling through these sections and, and they're cued out. And so you're always on the watch for, for the cues. And part of the art is actually learning you know, there's, there's almost nobody, nobody in the ensemble who doesn't get lost at some point and, you know, learning how to sort of like get back on and, um, you know, and the, the, the amazing sort of like uh, ensemble work is often sort of uh, knowing when you're, when your neighbor might need a little help and how to communicate to them. Yeah. This reminds me so much of, my, I was really fascinated with minimalist music during my, my uh, degree. And uh, I remember the first time I did encounter like NC, for example, and, and it is, one page with 53 little cells and you're like, how can this be interesting to listen to, let alone a long piece? But if you're not careful, it can easily be two hours long. And I guess that's, <laughs> that's what kind of happens with these sorts of pieces, right? You get into it, you've, you, as you experience it more, you've, there's things you want to do or not do. Yeah, it's very much, you know, I came up with jazz and I think, I mean, we're not sort of like improvising ever in the traditional sense, but every performance of it is different in that way that um you know the 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 musical sort of cells are an open number of times and um you'll never hear the same piece twice in that totally. way even with the same performers same intention it'll never be quite yeah i mean michael reisman the musical director i mean his history in the ensemble um and collaborating with philip is so incredibly deep that he i think he has a very very deep sense of you know the the lengths that he wants things to be and they end up often being pretty darn close but um yeah i think that's that's a really interesting aspect of the music um yeah just playing in the ensemble has had such a huge influence um on what i'm writing and doing as a leader and the way that i listen to music you know so much of modern music and modern jazz um is is so incredibly great but um I was listening to a podcast interview with an incredible jazz pianist, Shy Maestro, who, you know, uh, records for ECM now. And, uh, you know, he sort of compared a lot of music to like, you know, it's like somebody taking you to a Picasso exhibition um, and you, you ride through it on a motorcycle. And it's just like, you know, you don't get time to sort of like take any of it in by the, you know, you've like moved on to the next thing before you've had the chance to really take in what's current. And uh, that's really how a lot of it makes me feel um, that I wish they had like spent time, more time with these like beautiful ideas that, that are there. Um, and that's, yeah, something that I've really learned from this minimalist music. And, you know, it, it, jazz musicians are constantly trying to add new language, broaden my language, broaden my language, broaden my language, but oftentimes not really asking themselves, like, how can I do more with less? Mm. Yeah, I love that. 
I love your uh, analogy about the motorcycle too. That's exactly how I feel with streaming services. It drives me nuts. I, they're always pushing what's new, what's new, what's new. And it's not about just like getting into your music anymore as sort of CDs or LPs sort of used to be. So it's, it's can be frustrating in that sense of glossing over the surface of so much music that you don't ever go deep on it anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother series of podcasts. <laughs> totally, and that's totally. something I spend so much time thinking and, you know, of the last generations that will know what a CD and album is. Yeah. Um, and what that experiment experience is and just like not consuming music through a smartphone, which um, is, I mean, Spotify and streaming, it's just an incredible playground and it's such a dream. And I think there's something so cool as, you know, a creator that now I can make something and tell people about it and they can just access it right away. And that's, that's an astounding thing that, you know, before I was like, Hey, Sean, I have this new record and you had to like, you know, go to your local record store and there was like, you know, 99% chance they didn't have it and find some way to get it. And it was this long protracted thing. Now you can kind of hear that stuff right away. Um, and that's amazing. But um, also it comes with a lot of drawbacks and we're constantly, you know, if something doesn't pull us in right away, we just like can go to the next thing. We go to the next thing, we go to the next thing. And we sort of lose that um, period where maybe if we'd stuck with it, we might have really found something magical. That's an interesting kind of point about like the, the inaccessibility of stuff, though, like music, because I'm thinking back to what it must have been like for Philip in the 70s to to share and spread and spread his music around. And um, there must have been a certain type of like underground sense to like having one of his early vinyls or something in the 70s and like, oh, check this out. It's so cool. And and, uh, you know, it wasn't just available in everyone's pocket. You know, it was probably something much more kind of uh, mysterious for a while as it sort of burbled up from the, the you know, the musical um, cauldron of New York City in a way, you know. But before we move on, from, I want to talk about some of your albums and uh, much more that you've done, actually. But before we do move on from this ensemble, I'm just wondering, um, so day to day, Philip has kind of stepped out of it years ago from a day to day performer. But no, actually not years ago. Oh. He, uh he only stopped performing in the ensemble in uh, 2019 or 2020. I actually was sort of those first performances that I was on were the first ones um, without him. Really? So all that time. So I, I thought for some reason that he was only a partial member for longer than that. But so what is his involvement nowadays with the ensemble and what is it like, you know, working or discussing his music with him? Um, well, Philip just had his 85th birthday <laughs> yes. and, um, so he decided a few years ago that he was kind of done doing most of the travel that he had kind of done all of his life, um, for not just the ensemble, but all the works that he was doing in the premieres. And so, uh, yeah, so, uh, now the ensemble is, um, continuing on and it has kind of the exclusive right to play a huge catalog of his music, um, you know, that all this stuff can't be performed by other ensembles. Um, if, it, if, a, if a venue wants to present it, they have to hire the glass ensemble. Um, and so, you know, and obviously he allows us to use his name and uh, we're trying to move forward and navigate this new COVID, post-COVID world, which is, um, you know, very, very challenging as, as everybody knows. So his interaction lately is pretty much almost like uh, almost retired from the group, basically. 
Yes. Um, he can't, when we've played in New York, he's always come. I mean, you know, the P the members of the ensemble were, you know, our family to, to him. I mean, you know, that the history is so, so deep and the ensemble is so close to him that um, I think he, he makes every effort to be there when, when we do perform. I didn't know that they were exclusive rights. That's so interesting. So like, if I want to put on a concert of some of these pieces, I literally can't legally. Yeah, you can't, you won't find, you wow. can't present music in 12 parts. Wow. I didn't know that. And you know, a lot of that is just, I can't, the, the, the skills are kind of uh, so unique and specialized. Um, and also the sounds that, that are presented by the ensemble. I mean, they, they, they the keyboard patches and, you know, Lisa Bilava's, um, you know, vocal techniques. And it's just, it's so special. And I, I can understand why they protect it in that way. So, of course, that's not the case for all of Philip's music, though. I mean, much of it um, can be played by anyone in a recital or something like that. But is it just these specific pieces that the Glass Ensemble kind of champions that you shouldn't do that or can't do that with? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can you can order a book of his piano pieces online. You know, there are things you can get. Interesting. But yeah, I had this experience in the in the car the other day on the way back from the city. I actually live, you know, a little bit north of the city in the suburbs. And they were playing the opening to Glassworks, which is a solo piano piece. And, um, you know, to me, it's just I cannot get enough of that piece. And, you know, I just like and, every, and I heard it and I, you know, it's it's so incredibly simple in a way and so, so powerful and you know, whatever the critics say and people and, you know, inside the vaulted classical world, it's just like, I don't want to live in a world where that piece doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't care what you call it. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's just, it's so timeless. And um, it's just it's so powerfully spoke to where I was at that moment. And um, it was just a almost like transcendent experience moment for me. And, you know, back to, to what we were talking about with streaming and whatever, that's also just like that magic of hearing something on the radio. And there's like a certain like amount of togetherness because even though maybe you're not physically together, you know, if there's this community of people, hopefully that are listening to that same radio station um, that are having that same experience. But um, so much of my musical education you know, in college, we we got stoned and just like shared our record collections with each other. I mean, it was mostly CDs, but, um, you know, we didn't all have access to everything at our fingertips. And um, it was really magical, like hearing what sharing what you were checking out and um, vice versa. I miss the social element of like college and music where you just get together with people and just sit in the room and listen. And before iPhones and stuff like that, I don't think that kids nowadays will kind of have that same experience. I mean, there's this constant thing in your hand distracting you from what you're trying to do. And, and I remember just sitting with people, you know, late in the evening, just listening to music as a sole activity, <laughs> as a social activity, though, too. And I don't know how much of that there is now, but I should try and get you my CD that I recorded because um, I did a recording of uh, or an arrangement, sorry, of, of uh, opening and uh, Truman Sleeps for Marimba and Vibraphone, which I, I also play a bit of Marimba. So it kind of like bookended the album and then there was some Chick Corea things in the middle. So yeah, I should, uh, should try to get you that. I'd that. love to hear, actually, I'd love to hear Philip's feedback. on I, I tried to contact him at that point, but <laughs> <laughs> wasn't able to. So, but anyway, yeah, opening and, and that whole album Glassworks is such a cool, 
such a cool piece. So yeah, the second piece in that is kind of one of our regular concert uh, things, things that we play in concerts. Yeah, if anyone, if you haven't checked that out, that, that'd be a great one to kind of start with, but also dive into for sure some of the, you know, the bigger works like music in 12 parts, etc. And uh, so do be sure to check out the Philip Glass Ensemble at uh, philipglassensemble.com. And uh, but let's dive into some of the other stuff that you've done, because there's just so much here that we can we can talk about. Of course, you've worked with other artists like Brad, Brad Maldow, which is uh, I love his playing. What was your involvement with with him? I happened to meet Brad Maldow as uh I was probably 17 years old. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles and he was living there for a year or two and uh, kind of, you know, moved there without knowing a lot of people. And we got hooked up and um, he invited me to his house to play and we became friends and we've kind of been in touch um, ever since we actually, he asked me to do a duo gig and that was um a very, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe that, <laughs> that experience. I mean, I, I think it was like, I was just like a cocky little kid and, um, you know, just went and played with Brad Meldow. I mean, I think that would actually be a lot more intimidating, you know, now, um, I know exactly 25 what you years mean. later or whatever, yeah. <laughs> um, somehow, but, uh, yeah. And then about 10 years ago, he, uh, was commissioned by Carnegie hall to, to write a piece for two pianos and, um, and I think four or five woodwinds. So I was, I was a part of that. And that was, that was amazing. Cause not only was it Brad, but you know, the saxophone section on that, where it had Joshua Redman and Chris Cheek and Greg Tardy and, you know, some real heroes of the instrument. That's amazing. That's so interesting. It's again, so diverse as to your playing. I, I... I also talked to you afterwards, but um, Brad has been someone I've been trying to get on my other podcast, which is about Radiohead. He did some incredible piano arrangements. I don't know if you're familiar with them, of uh, some of those pieces. I think uh, Paranoid Android and uh, maybe one other one, which escapes me right now. But uh, incredible. Yeah, incredible playing. So much improvisation with that, which is so different than, you know, the work with the Philip Glass Ensemble, I'm sure. So absolutely. And he was such a huge part of just like bringing... um, current rock music into the jazz world in a really interesting and fresh and kind of organic way. Yeah, really interesting. So what advice do you have then for those who are are, are looking to like do more improvisation and perhaps doubling and recording and just sort of having a more expansive career as you've accomplished as far as the many genres and and, uh, you know, styles of music you've played and many different projects, you know, ranging from chamber music to jazz to you know minimalism. And it's just so diverse. You know, my musical education really um, was not traditional. I just kind of learned by doing and be by, you know, just being thrown into the fire. So, you know, I didn't really learn harmony out of a book, basically. You know, my first teacher, my major teacher growing up was... Um, guy named Vince Trombetta and he'd just be like you know what let's have you write a saxophone quartet I knew nothing about arranging harmony and it was just like sort of this process of doing that's always how I've learned and I think also I was very much you know my parents are musicians and I didn't really have you know, a lot of the illusions that I think young people coming, going into a music career might have about, you know, what lays ahead of them. I sort of like knew 
had a better idea than most, I think, about what the, the realities were. And, you know, and I was just like, okay, I have to work and I'm going to say yes to everything. And, um, you know, I really, and that took me a lot of places where, where I learned a lot of things. It's funny you say that. Stanley Drucker said basically the same thing. He just started saying yes to all that he could. And, <laughs> and uh, that's such uh, interesting advice from the standpoint, too, though, of like a lot of people nowadays, I think they feel like they need to get X, Y, Z thing done before they can do the next step of their career, whether that be their doctorate or, or you know, watch whatever YouTube learning series or, or whatever. I mean, if you think about Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, all these great composers, you know, just to name a few in the past, I mean, there was no music harmony books in the sense that we know today that analyze all, they had to invent these things. Yeah. Like as an, as an improviser, I mean, the first, the major sort of like first step of my learning was my teacher would say, okay, let's sit down and compose a solo over the changes of all the things you are. And, you know, and I didn't have a real jazz vocabulary at that point that I was tapping into a lot of people start with like okay here are your 251 licks and let's let's try to inject these you know basically I spent you know thousands of hours probably just sitting at a piano and I mean I knew enough about like reading chord symbols to where I could sort of like plunk out one three five seven and you know root position and I just sat at the piano finding things and sounds that I liked and wrote those down and you know improvisation is composition that's in the moment you know with without a pen and paper and so uh you know that process was slowed down and really i think that's how i learned and that's how i trained my ears as well and you know improvisation is still just such a fascinating thing it's, it's just like an endless journey and it's um everybody kind of has taken a different road to get to where they are as an improviser. Uh, you know, but one sort of like quality or ability, I think that every single improviser has or every improviser that's really worth listening to is I think there's a deep idea of the sound of any note, either against another note or against a chord or with a chord on top of a chord, however you want to say it. But, and it's not something that you can put into words, but, you know, if there's a C minor chord, I can, I know exactly what, like every single note, how it'll sort of like touch that C minor chord and what it might want to do. Do you mean as far as just like dissonance and resolution and creating tension and, and release, that kind of thing? Ex exactly. Oh, yeah. It's funny you say that because I, I have done limited study of improvisation, but the CD project I was talking about actually did receive some some jazz grants and things. And one of the things we did was study with some, I think it was four different improvisers, and they each had sort of interesting different takes on, on how to do different elements, which, you know, as someone who was new to it, I found really interesting. But one of the most interesting points was like, you're only ever really a semitone away from a right note. <laughs> and <laughs> if you play a wrong note, like play it again, you know, like make it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, when people come to me, you know, wanting advice on starting improvisation, I always just say, play with drones. Yeah. Everybody, you know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by, um, all the information and technical aspects. And, you know, a lot of people sort of like learn via this like chord scale thing where like you, there are these chords and there are these scales you can play over these chords, but you know, really the ears are the first step 
Um, and just like, you know, if you're a classical musician, just liberating yourself from the written page and dealing with the, the mental blocks that you have. And I think one of the really, really easy and effective ways is, um, you know, find some app or, you know, some there's now like you can find albums that are just drones now and, um, and just play with them and, and see what comes out and start there. Even just your major, minor, whatever scales up and down and listen to what happens, I think is important. Like when you're playing that, you know, second above the root, like, what do you, where does it want to go? Like, what, what would you do with it? Exactly. You know, and then, and another thing is just like, take little simple folk tunes, you know, or kids songs or whatever, and play them in all the keys. Um, I, I'm kind of astounded how many people, you know, move on to sort of like sophisticated things before being able to do that. And just how, how valuable that is play happy birthday in all 12 keys um, and see if you could do that. I mean, play old McDonald in 12 keys. Have you heard the story of that pianist? Um, I can't remember who it was. A really famous pianist, though, was asked to play Happy Birthday uh, for someone at some private dinner party. And uh, he had this moment where he realized, like, wait a minute, I don't know how to, to do that. And so he made some joke like, you know, that's not in my repertoire. And everyone just laughed and they moved on. But like he quite seriously did not know how to do that after and he just finished playing like Rachmaninoff <laughs> so this is I think why it's important to have an improvisational element or you know a basic understanding of chord progressions and things as part of everyone's repertoire absolutely um one more thing it makes me think of before we move on is uh, I've been taking some you're mentioning the pandemic how you focused on clarinet I actually uh, decided to take some guitar lessons online with someone who I've been following his YouTube channel for a long time and finally I just was like hey do you do some lessons and we've been interacting. It's been really great, but um, he is totally differently minded than I was as far as his training. He's all about like the sound chords, the, um, the relationship of the notes and just getting off the paper. And so some of the stuff he was having me do is like, you know, play your scale on the guitar and then play each chord as a scale and, and, and then try and make like a song, but then pick some little riff and then play it through each chord and see how the riff interacts with every chord and then before you know it, you've got like a, maybe a song idea or something that's got a really cool repetitive kind of droning thing throughout it that it, it just was a mind blowing way of, of practicing your scales, which if you do it wrong, can be so boring. <laughs> uh-huh. But if you put on a drone and you, you look at your scale practices improvising, I think it can be a lot more exciting. Yeah, I'm terrible. You know, a lot of people have have a real daily routine they do that kind of like is their clarinet calisthenics. And I think it's hugely beneficial to just like playing the instrument. And I have never had anything like that. I'm kind of all over the place. There are a few sort of like warm up type things that sort of like pop up in my worlds. Um, but, you know, I, I don't stick with one, you know, the way that a lot of people do. And, you know, I think that's been a shortcoming for me in a lot of ways and has limited, you know, what I can do on the instrument in some ways, but, um, you know, that is just sort of, uh, my musical mentality and, uh, you know, Steve Lacey, the great soprano saxophonist composer, and, um, you know, just talked about making daily bread with his music, (laughs) you know, or like with his, his, uh, not with his music, but in his practice. And just like, you know, he was very much in the moment and yeah, I remember growing up, you know, like a, a lot of times, it would be like, well, play in all 12 keys, play in all 12 keys. But I would often like pick just like a key of the day. And, you know, I would be in like my science class 
you know, in 10th grade or whatever, thinking about my practice after school and just like, like today's key is going to be E flat major or whatever. And I would just like improvise an E flat major and do everything I knew in E flat major that day. That's exactly what one of my teachers for the improv stuff said was he'd like roll a dice basically and like pick a note and he'd do everything you could think of on that note <laughs> for the day. You know, all the intervals, all the scales, all the patterns, all the little songs he could play or pieces or whatever, and just kind of, you know, see how long he could go on on just, you know, see. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I, that pretty much always like comes into my little, you know, warm up that, that I do is um, there are these flute exercises written by a composer named Roy Kurt. I don't know anything else, or maybe she was, I don't know, even know if he was a flutist or just a composer. Um but if I could do those all on clarinet really well, that that might just be it. They're so, so great and address just everything that you need. Um, some of them are kind of boring, but there there's a few that are just astoundingly great and rewarding to play. And um, yeah, maybe it's something that you can put a link to as well. I know they're they're from the you know 19th century, so um, they're up on the IMSLP and whatnot. So speaking of etude books, let's let's segue into your etude books. You have uh, three or four actually that you have composed yourself. And clarinet players, this is something that they can they can purchase from your website at samsadagursky.com, as well as your music, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, tell me a bit about your your uh, etude books. I must be honest. I, I know you've sent them to me. I haven't had the chance to <laughs> dive into them with a with a newborn here, but <laughs> I do plan this summer to to have a more in depth look. But you've got some you know great reviewers here by Mike, Michael Lowenstern, who's also been on the show, and uh, many others. So tell me a bit about your etude books. Thanks. Um, yes. So uh, there's three. Uh, there's three books for clarinet. There's two of them have um, two of them have twenty five etudes each. And uh, the third book are 10 sort of longer etudes. And this was, you know, I was talking earlier about me sort of like this evolution or transition to really kind of putting the clarinet first. And this was one of my real first steps um, was um, writing these. I mean, you know, I I just find um, writing uh, is maybe my favorite thing to do. And, you know, sometimes I'll just get, get so wrapped up in it that the, the whole day has gone by and I've just, you know, done nothing but write. Um, and so, you know, the fact that I could write and also like have a clarinet in my hands and in my mouth for those, most of those 10 hours when it wasn't like a pencil on the paper was really appealing. Um, but yeah, also I just wanted to write some things that were in a more contemporary language that was in a language that had a little bit more variety. And also, you know, I'd found that there weren't a lot of clarinet etudes that were in some of the really, really nasty keys. And um, as you know, most sort of classical orchestral clarinet players, you know, uh, most of the stuff that's in those keys is just put on a clarinet and it's problem solved. Um, And that's not a part of my world. And so I really, you know, a lot of the, the work I do, you know, I might have to play a solo in, you know, F sharp on the clarinet and I've had to learn how to kind of navigate those those worlds and back to what we were talking about with like practicing certain keys um but uh so yeah that that's also kind of a big focus of these books um but yeah they were really just you know more than anything just like a very fun project and um you know and I think they do tech they do address sort of a lot of the the, the technical problems of the clarinet 
as as etudes should. I mean, it's funny because, you know, since writing those, I've discovered that there's a lot of great material existing that that I didn't that I didn't know about. Um, that had I known about it, maybe I wouldn't have sort of like uh, thrown my hat into the ring <laughs> with these. But I'm it's it's thrilling for me that they're that these books are getting around and that there are people, you know, that that who are playing them and um, you know, hopefully benefiting from them. Well, you know, it's I think it's important that new people get their sort of hat in the ring, as you say, because I don't teach a lot anymore, but when I was doing a lot of teaching, um, I got really tired of all the same etudes and things that, you know. I had done and my teachers had done and then even the books that I never did touch that you know many people have done for so many years and it's just it's nice to have new music from from people you can talk to you know sometimes and uh, I think that especially someone like you with more of a a jazz uh, uh, commercial music a different kind of background I mean people don't realize that or people I mean orchestral players (laughs) they don't realize that um, they have that a clarinet in their bag but oftentimes like a Broadway player or a doubler or someone who plays commercial music, they don't have that A clarinet in there. So you're right, they encounter the more difficult key signatures a lot more often, even by sight transposition, which to, to many players is, is even more intimidating, right? So I think, like, what was your main goal when you wrote these to set out? Like, what it says book one, two, three, for example, um, what level of player or, or ideal kind of person would pick up that first book and work their way through the series? Uh, a certain level of uh, masochism, I would say, um, <laughs> for sure. Um, no, they're 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 definitely advanced, and I think if I were to write them again or write more, I would write less advanced things. I think I think a lot of my focus in those sort of at, at that in that period was on my fingers and developing that. And I think you know, in the past like four or five years, for me, it's more been about just like sound and addressing a lot of real fundamental things. I mean, I'm still, I'm a real bastard clarinetist. Um, and, you know, I'm breaking, I find myself like still trying to break a lot of kind of like bad saxophone habits. And um, it's, uh, it's, you know, a lifelong journey, um, conquering this, not conquering, but um, <laughs> learning this, uh, learning this instrument. It feels like conquering. Um, <laughs> I'm in such awe of people who who play the instrument incredibly well. Um, yeah, I think now I find myself gravitating towards um, etudes and things that that are simpler. Where it's still, I try still find things that like sort of satisfy me musically. Like I don't, I kind of like have a limited appetite for playing a lot of the really traditional clarinet etudes because they all, you know, they, a lot of them just like start to be the same after a while and they're very arpeggiated arpeggio based and uh so yeah i try to find things that are simpler these days but still musically interesting and yeah one of my sort of projects for the upcoming year or two i really want to write some duets that i think are that are contemporary but you know like casually playable by you know fairly advanced player getting together you know i i, I just got together with a friend um to play duets and drink coffee um last weekend and uh you know and i sort of brought like the traditional clarinet books that i have which are you know i'm sure there's better stuff out there but you know i I searched on the internet after we got together looking for like a compendium or a book of uh, a collection and i didn't find it um i didn't find anything that was out there so i'd really like to sort of like create something that um people can play sort of 
that isn't overly complex and or difficult to put together, but you know, I think satisfying and, and challenging enough. I think it's a great idea. And I, I also love when I find, um, you know, etudes or when I was teaching, you know, etudes and, and duets and things that are, again, a little more contemporary, kind of exploring contemporary techniques or ideas, or even like loosely touching on jazz or a subtle improvisation section or things like that. It's, it's uh, so nice to see that included sometimes because we won't find those, those things um, if we just relentlessly play, you know, rose etudes and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I was so lucky, you know, Michael Lone Stern has been like so hugely supportive of of my work. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that's so remarkable about him. And he's like really tried to find this beyond for for his instrument. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, I do also want to touch on your you have a three disc album project, which has been recently released called the Solomon Diaries. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yes. Um, so this is like very Jewish inspired music. My father is actually a clarinetist and accordionist who is this real like encyclopedia of Eastern European folk music and klezmer music. And that's something that I grew up with. And you know, over the last like 10 years, I'd say has become a huge part of my professional life. I kind of perform for a lot of synagogues um, in the area, you know, as part of their services and I subbed quite a bit on the last Broadway production of Fiddler on the Roof in the kind of like solo clarinet chair. And uh, then was part of, um, which you mentioned the beginning of the podcast, The Band's Visit, which was a show that uh, was uh, based on kind of like Arabic and Middle Eastern and Jewish music. Um, And so, yeah, all that stuff became a deeper part of my DNA. And I kind of wanted to write things that were more sort of like folk inspired. And yeah, what, uh pandemic hit and I really needed something to do and you know keep me sane and um you know it's just uh so important to just try to make lemonade out of all this so I was really lucky to be able to record these albums they're just duo actually it's me and um an incredible accordionist um named Nathan Kosi who's like just an absolute virtuoso and such a deep deep musician um so yeah we got to really develop this music of mine and um, make three albums of it that that came out earlier this this year. You know, it's amazing to me. I, I feel almost guilty sometimes because people like you with your your three albums during the pandemic, and <laughs> I, I don't feel like I have as much to show for it. But um, I think it's great though that some people are able to find that kind of uh, creative, you know, passion during that time. And I remember early on even saying, the one thing that I wonder what will come out of this is the creative projects which we have yet to hear. And this is one of those projects, I think, that I don't want to say it was inspired by the pandemic, but I think the circumstance of the isolation and, and everything did lead to, you know, the culmination of these these pieces and uh, the recordings, surely, right? Absolutely. I, I think that it's, uh, would you think this would have come to existence had it not been for that sort of isolated, drawn out time that we've all experienced? I think I would have documented the music, but I don't know that I don't, I'm actually, I, I do know that we wouldn't have found the uh, a, a certain depth that's there you know Nathan Kosi the accordionist and I just like had very very busy freelance lives um before this and you know now that those are actually sort of resuming more for him at the moment than me but um it, you know we're just like now we have those challenges again of you know of, of connecting and um you know finding time to rehearse 
and and such and or even like booking gigs you know he's about to go away for six months um so you know it was like an incredible thing that we both like really got to give almost all our focus to to this music of mine and i mean you know all the suffering and hardship aside i'm incredibly just like great i'm so grateful for that um and yeah i mean i've been astoundingly fortunate in the pandemic and that you know my wife has a grown-up job and she's not in the arts <laughs> and you know i've had a certain stability that um a lot of my musician peers have not had and they've really had to scramble to you know how am i going to live through this you know just like they're through to figure out very elemental things that um weren't um so much of a challenge for me no, I also feel very fortunate. I, I don't know what to do about that, uh, you know, situation for so many who who haven't had the chance to, you know, make ends meet during all this. And I, I feel really bad for the whole musical community, but I really hope that we can we can come out of it now. But not to circle back completely, but are these pieces available on uh, Spotify now or all the streaming services? They are on Spotify or, you know, I, um, one of the greatest places to kind of consume music and support the people who are making it is Bandcamp. Bandcamp, yes. Um, so the the albums are up on Bandcamp where you can actually listen to them for free. And if you choose to sort of buy them, the money goes predominantly to the artists. And that's the only place where, where that actually happens. Yes, and in a post-CD world, that is a great means of supporting artists as well. You know, I think that uh, we forget that people used to have something physical to sell at shows, you know. And now that the streaming has taken over, it's just basically, hey, check out my, you know, Spotify page or I'll make 0. 0.009 cents if you listen to my song <laughs> three times, you know, it's it's hard. That's hard. So, yeah, do support the artists that you enjoy. And I love the Bandcamp app, actually, because you can actually stream as if it were Spotify or something within the app, but you've paid the artist. <laughs> you've paid is... the artist and you've sort of like curated yeah. your own little world there, too. So I, I also you, you're not like you're not so much as uh being driven by the algorithm yeah which i i do like so i really enjoy that and then you know and i have to say the algorithm is incredible i mean i find things on spotify or things that are like suggested to me by the algorithm that are astoundingly great and have become huge parts of my world and um yeah it's a very very tough sort of balance that that we all have to um that we all have to live right now with with so much power in our pockets and in our laptops and whatever and um sort of you know navigating that is is tremendously difficult the apple music algorithm is nowhere near as good i i don't like it at all i wish i, <laughs> I would like to go back to spotify i'll have to look into that yeah but. i think i think spotify part of it is they're they're a european company and um i really connect with a lot of the music coming out of um from european jazz musicians i think there's actually they've really they they're not they're less afraid to draw from these kind of minimalist and folk languages that that I really love these days and um yeah I've just found some astoundingly great things that unfortunately like really don't make it across the pond. One of the earliest streaming services, which I'm sure no one remembers, uh, was Pandora and then Ardio. Ardio was my favorite ever. It was so good, such great recommendations. And I don't know what happened to it. One day it just closed up and <laughs> Spotify came out. So. Well, before we close up here, is there anything else you'd like to share on the program for listeners? No, I'm 
just th thrilled to be a part of this. Um, you know, I'm sure you're, you're, you know, this is a real clarinet podcast and it's a huge honor to, to be on it. And I'm sure I, there's a lot for me to learn from the people listening to this. So, <laughs> Well, it's an idea that I got from uh, the person who's been guest hosting some interviews here, uh, Joel Jaffe, but uh, he's been asking at the end a great question, which I never thought to ask, but uh, was there anything you'd like to ask me before we wrap up? I'm really just eager to hear your music, and that's that's something that that I will have to do. Yeah, I'll send it along. We we uh, went in so many different directions. We we're going to talk about doubling and things like that, and uh, we'll uh, maybe do this again sometime. Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, one of the problems with the album project that I did was. Uh, I joked that, you know, the licensing of the music was so complicated that it's an, it's enough to drive you to write your own music next time. Oh, <laughs> so yes. If I do another album, I think it will be my own music because it was really difficult to find the, uh, you know, the licensing of the, especially the Philip Glass pieces. I think I had to go through the Harry Fox agency in the States or something like that. And uh, but it was much more involved than one might, you know, think or realize when they're first starting out. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, when you reach out to these kind of big people, they don't even know what to do with kind of like an independent artist. And it's, you know, oftentimes what they might, what they might get from it is not even worth their, their time and they just simply ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the weird thing is because I did it on a grant, everything had to be completely by the books. So like I couldn't actually book the recording time at the studio until I could present my licenses to do the pieces that weren't my own. And uh, same thing with the CD printing company, the Alberta Foundation of the Arts. I think they've changed this now, but they used to have a stipulation that you must print a certain number of CDs, which I think was 500 at least, to go with your project. But like even in 2015, people were really not wanting CDs anymore. So I still have most of them in my garage. Um, so if you want a CD, send me, send me a message at hello at clarinet.com. And if you pay shipping, I'll send you one. Um, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was really it was really tough because I, people would support the project and then I couldn't give the CDs away. <laughs> you know, they would say, Hey, can you just send me the download card? I don't really need the CD. I don't have a CD player. My laptop doesn't play CDs anymore or whatever. So anyway, but um, yeah, no, we'll, we'll connect about that. And uh, yes, of course, I'd always love to have people back multiple times. So we should do this. We should do this again. But um, for those listening on Apple podcasts, Spotify, speaking of, or um, any other free streaming platform, the episode will end here. But for those supporting the show, either on Patreon or directly at clarinet.com slash join, there are a few bonus questions such as favorite books, favorite albums, favorite musical moments, etc. coming up on the extended lightning round portion of the show. So uh, thank you so much, Sam, for joining me here, and I'll see you in a moment for the lightning round. All right. Thank you, Sean. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Carter Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store, or you can now save 10% on your Legere reads with code CLARINET at checkout at legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot -E com. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. 
Use code Clarinet at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code Clarinet at checkout. 